As Dan mentioned, I'm Keith DeVries, and today's passage is one of the pivotal uh, passages within the New Testament marking the start of the modern definition of Christian church, Acts 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. So it's the first Sunday of the year, and I want to begin with a disclaimer. This sermon is not about New Year's resolutions. I think those are good things to do. Um, I just couldn't find a text for it, so (laughs) I've made a few myself, but I I would like to reflect on a topic that I think is particularly important right now as we remember what we've been through for the last two years. Now, I was talking to somebody about this, and uh, we both agreed that most of us are tired of hearing, now, it's been a tough year, or we've been through a lot, all those things. So, I start out by saying the thing that I'm tired of hearing, but I want to remind us of where we've been. And where we've been, among other things, could be described as various stages of isolation and or loneliness. If that's a proper assessment of where we've been for the last two years, it's likely that this is an important time to refocus on the community of faith and its importance. So for that reason, I start today in a series on the community of faith that I'm calling the community of Christ, namely the importance of the church. I uh, have used this quote in years past, but I use it again. The quote reads like this, isolation or loneliness is an insidious type of stress that leads to chronic inflammation, an increased risk of heart disease, arthritis, and diabetes. Loneliness has the same effect on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's Dr. Murthy, the former Surgeon General of the United States. Maybe a little more concise quote about the same topic comes from Mother Teresa. She said, a life without other people is the worst disease any human being can ever experience. So let me make a 
application to those two statements, which are primarily about the body and psychological health, and adapt it in this way. Spiritual isolation is an insidious type of stress that affects a person's faith. It is. So over the last two years, we have all in various stages experienced loneliness and isolation. And part of our loneliness and isolation has been withdrawal from community in a larger sense, for good reason. But it's also been withdrawal from the community of faith. And we've watched it for two years. I've not only watched it for two years, but over the last two years, I've been in contact quite a bit with other pastors, not just in Bloomington, but in Indianapolis and other regions, who are telling the exact same story. That over the last two years, the church has suffered dramatically because of isolation and withdrawal. I begin before I refer to the passage that was read that Keith described as, not his words, an epic passage related to the definition of what church ought to be. But before I get there, I want to mention something that you probably have heard me say before or read yourself. And that is that the New Testament knows no such thing as a Christian without community. Or put it another way, a Christian without church. I, I want you to think about the communal and relational language that's used to describe the church. Here are just some of the words that are words of Scripture. Body, field, bride, followers, disciples, people of the way, saints, citizens. Can you find in any of those words individualized Christianity? Can you find in any of those words me and my Jesus and me and my Bible? You can't. What you find is community. The entire Christian life including Bible study, as important as individual Bible study is. And I, and I promise you I'm committed to individual Bible study. I do it every single day of my life. But as important as that is, Bible study is supposed to also be done in community. The entire Bible is about community. Beginning from the Old Testament, the people of God in community, to the New Testament, the people of God in community. 
sometime, if you'd like to do this, it's an interesting exercise. You might just focus on one epistle, only one. Take, for instance, Ephesians. And see how often, when you look at it contextually, that all Paul's words are two people in community. Us. We. If you were reading the old King James Version, you would routinely hear the pronoun thou or thee. What you notice in Ephesians as you read through it, at the very beginning, we get all stumbled up by the description of predestination. And we forget that every word of that description is about the church, not necessarily about individuals. It's about a community. You, not you, namely Freddie Brown, but you, the body of Christ, were chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, God predestined you, all of you, You, the body of Christ. That's the way Paul talks throughout the entire book of Ephesians. Take a look at it for yourself. Read it with a different set of eyes. And see if lights don't come on in a new way. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we could describe as a window into the community of Christ. An early picture of the community of Christ. So what did that early picture of the community of Christ look like? It was a learning community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What might that have meant? Well, really, it could only mean one thing. It can only mean the apostles' teaching concerning the Messiah through the revealed word of God, namely the Old Testament. And the ongoing revelation of God coming from the teachings of the apostles concerning Christ, discipleship, and people of the way. That's what devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings was all about. It was learning, deep learning. Uh, I love John Stott, as if you've heard me preach a number of times, you know. And he summarized this text with words that I paraphrased to make them short. He said, the Holy Spirit opened a school on the day of Pentecost. The disciples were the teacher And there were 3,000 kindergartners enrolled in the first class. (laughs) Isn't that great? They they came in with this understanding concerning Jesus as the Messiah, which was absolutely revolutionary and turning their world upside down. And the apostles said, let's think about it. This is what it means. And they devoted themselves to the study of the word through the apostles. You know, learning requires knowledge of the Scripture. If you're going to learn about the faith in the Christian tradition, 
Knowledge of the scriptures is a prerequisite to it. You must consume it as if it's your food for life. And then after you consume it, you must interpret it. And the importance of interpreting it in community is to make sure you don't go off the rails. Because my private interpretation of Scripture is not enough. That's why community is so important to interpretation. One of the great parts of the evangelical heritage, which I steadfastly embrace, is the study of the Word of God. And you know what else is a part of it? Debate. Debate concerning what the Scriptures mean. And you know what? That is really good. It's very healthy. It's something I never want to suppress. And it's something, thanks be to God, that has characterized this church for 40 plus years. If we're serious about learning and serious about teaching, we must engage one another even to the point of disagreement and debate and embrace community. That's how we learn. First, it was a learning community. Second, it was a sharing community. Everybody shared what they had. It's interesting to remember, it's not something you first think of, but when you think of sharing together as a fellowship in community, it is a reflection of divine trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity. Individual, but perfect unity. So in sharing, the believers realized that certain people did not have as much goods as others. Did they create an economic system that describes some sort of political agenda for the church? No. Did they demand that everybody sell their goods and give it to the poor? No. You know how we know that? Because there were really wealthy people in the early church that had large homes, and that's where the Christians met. They didn't sell them. What they did is they said, let's have an understanding of community that goes so deep that when we see a need, we meet the need. And on occasion, that meant someone would sell property to meet the need. It's a notion that they were not alone in what could have been a very hostile world. Certainly what was a very minority community in first century Rome. They devoted themselves to one another through sharing their material goods, their finances. But they also devoted themselves by sharing in community well, through fellowship. They didn't isolate in their homes. They came out of their homes to be together. 
critically important for the notion of spiritual community. Coming out of home to be together. They celebrated um, in community, sharing in, and this is something that could, could not catch your attention immediately in the text, sharing in the fellowship. Definite article there for a reason. The fellowship. People debate why the definite article is there. The fellowship. One thing that seems apparent is it doesn't mean just fellowship. It means the fellowship. It means the community of saints. Some have suggested, and I happen to agree, that part of being in the fellowship and sharing meals together in the fellowship was what is in front of you right now, the Lord's Supper. It was critical to their self-understanding. It was critical to them gathering together to share a meal. Not just for nourishment of the body, but in this case, nourishment of the soul. There's a principle in here, among other things, that has emerged in the Christian fellowship that when you share, you in effect give a tithe to the fellowship. You say, God has blessed me enormously. Not everyone is as fortunate. I can't meet every individual need, but I can give to the fellowship so the fellowship can make sure that no one goes hungry. It's shared community. So they were a learning community. They were a sharing community. And third, they were a worshiping community. Why a worshiping community? Well, you might say, why did you even say that, right? (laughs) Uh, The reason I say that is because we tend to ask this question now. Why worship? Or what is worship about? Why worship? Here, my friends, is the bottom line. Because God is worthy of worship, period. End of sentence. What are the ancillary effects of worship? It might be delight. It might be joy. It might be meeting a particular spiritual need. But those are secondary. The importance of worship is one thing. Worshiping a holy God. That's why we worship Because we ought to. When you think of ancient religions, which you probably don't think of every day, (laughs) you might, if you haven't, I'll ask it for you. Why did ancient worship not come under investigation for its importance? In other words, the ancients worshipped God or the gods and never asked why. They didn't. Because the answer was perfectly obvious. The gods were awesome. 
The gods were great. The gods in some fashion, even if only because of their power, were worthy of worship. If you ask an ancient person, why do you worship? He or she might look at you and ask, why do you ask? Or he might look at you and say, well, it's obvious. Because they're gods. That's why, by the way, the ancients worshipped the constellations. Why? Because they were mysterious. They were mighty. They were out there. They were like gods. Why do I even bring this up? By the way, there'll be two sermons on worship in the series. So you may hear some repeated themes. I bring it up because we have such an elevated sense of our own importance and our intellect. We have a false sense of control. Worship is to acknowledge a lack of control. Worship is to say, things are above my control. God is above my control. And only God is in control. That's why I worship. And there are numerous things that are reasons for worship being appropriate. But when you think about ancient worship, the distinctive, the distinctive of Christian worship is not only is God worthy and almighty and worthy of praise, but that almighty, transcendent God actually is personal, actually is good, and actually loves us. That's the distinctive nature of Christian worship. But the distinctive nature of Christian worship is always to focus on God and not on self. Or to never ask the question first, what's in it for me? But always to ask the question first, how can I glorify a worthy God? Worship is a pathway to knowledge of God. Communication, you know this, is essential to learning. That's why at the university, professors speak and talk about what they know and they teach. And students, to a certain extent, depending on the size, get to know the professor and ask questions and are in conversation with the professor. Because communication is critical to learning. Here's the reality. Worship is communication with God. In order to learn deeply about God, we must communicate with God, not just study about God, not just read about God, but literally, my friends, talk to God. And we do it corporately and personally through worship. The praise to God is direct. The thanks to God is to a person. The honor to God is to the personal God 
that we love. Why worship? Because it's uh, true that God is worthy of worship. Why worship? Because it's a pathway to knowledge. Why worship? Because it's an essential part of life. One of the interesting images related to worship in the temple and throughout is that when we worship, God tabernacles among us. God sets up his tent, his habitation among us when we worship. That means, I believe, that God is specially present in the fellowship of worshiping believers. Yeah, God is present with me individually, even when I'm not here. But when I'm here with you in worship, God tabernacles, dwells among us in a way that he doesn't just individually for me. Instead of thinking of worship as going to worship because we have a great need and we need some help because we're in a critical situation and we want to get a little insight or maybe even please God so our life will go better. Instead of thinking of worship that way, we ought to view worship, corporate worship, as food and water for living, a sustenance for the soul. It was not only a a learning community, a sharing community, a worshiping community, it was a praying community. They prayed as a congregation and, by the way, you notice from the text, they went to the temple together to pray. These were Christians who no longer were a part of the sacrificial system of goats and bulls. They understood Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. So it's very likely, though we don't have enough text to know for sure, that they were not a part of the sacrificial system of the temple, but they still went. They went together in prayer, and they gathered in homes. Eventually, of course, because of the, the, the movement away from the Jewish tradition and the persecution by the Jewish majority in certain towns, Christians began to fellowship exclusively with one another in worship. But isn't it interesting that the earliest Christians did not desert the temple because they saw it as the place of worship. And they went there together to pray. Remember Peter and John on their way to the temple to pray and a healing takes place. It was part of their daily activity. They prayed together in their homes. They prayed privately. They prayed together at the temple. It was essential to their faith. As a matter of fact, it's pretty clear from the New Testament that early on, the Christians were following the Jewish pattern of three times a day in prayer. The Didache that we just read a few moments ago, that wasn't all of it. There were other parts of the teaching. 
And part of the teaching of the Didache remain, uh, was a recommendation for praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Three times a day. Just stop and pray. I've often wondered how we can rationalize around that. I don't care how busy you are. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You can find three times a day just to stop. And if nothing else, say the Lord's Prayer. Can't you? Can we? Can we make it a new direction for this new year? How hard would it be? Three times a day. They were a learning community, a sharing community, a worshiping community, a praying community. And you notice at the very end of this passage, they were a joyful community. Joy can be attractive, can it? Have you ever noticed a person who um, seems to be beautiful? And then after you get to know them, you realize their beauty is their joy? You realize if you just saw them once and didn't know them, they wouldn't strike you as so beautiful. Even a picture would not capture their beauty, but their life captures their beauty. Joy is attractive. And it's even contagious. Which may be the reason that at the end of this passage, there's a reference that says this. They praise God and enjoyed favor with all the people. They didn't shout at each other. They surely debated. They didn't let their differences divide them, though they had them. They were not angry with their communities outside the fellowship. They were constantly joyful together and in the community, the larger community, outside the fellowship of faith. And what happened? Well, God added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Because they came up with a snappy program for evangelism, I'm not dissing programs for evangelism. No. Because they were a Christ community. That's it. Because they were the community of Christ. You, you say to yourself, reasons for their joy? Well, really, the reasons for their joy are the same reasons that when we focus on this reality would be reasons for our joy. They were loved by God. And they knew it. 
They were adopted by God. They were saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and they knew it. And they rejoiced over their adoption. Because of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, they were freed from self-focus in order to be able to love others. You know, the greatest impediment to our love for others is our self-focus, isn't it? If I can get out of the way long enough, I can actually love the other better. That's why they had such a joy. And it's because they found a purpose for living and a promise of eternal life that no one could take away. They were eternally secure in the hands of their master. Oh, that produces joy. And they realized that in everything, every circumstance of life, including the last two years for this community of faith, that God works for the good in all those circumstances for those who love him. I was talking to somebody the other day and um, they asked me what was um, something they could pray for. And I gave them two things. But the first thing I gave them was at the top of the list because it came to me just like that. The first prayer request was for the restoration of the church. Not just here, but across this whole country. The restoration of the church. That out of this, what seems to be dire evil of two years from hell, God will resurrect his church and make it new. It's possible, not only because it's an optimistic outlook, it's possible because, I'm not talking about timing here, (laughs) I'm talking about reality, it's possible because Christ said, On that confession, Peter, the confession that said, I am the Christ, the son of the living God, on that confession, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. No pandemic can destroy it. No civil unrest can destroy it. It's eternal and it will live. That I believe. At the risk, and I know there's a risk in uh, what I'm about to say of trying to make a point about what we just did. 
we changed our name to Christ Community Church. I loved that name. I can't tell you how much delight it brings me when people ask me, what's the name of your church? And I'm able to say Christ Community Church. You know why? Because there's only one focus there. It's the community of Christ. Nothing else is important. So about a week or so ago, I I got a phone call, which I do randomly from Dave Ferris. Now, those of you who don't know Dave Ferris, he was the founder of this church. More than about 40-some years ago now. And um, I said, how are you, Bob? Those of you who know him, you can hear his voice. Doing well, Dave. He said, so you changed the name of the church, huh? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Now the former pastor is going to critique it. (laughs) I said, yeah, we did, Dave. We went through a lot of conversations about that and We changed the name. He said, Bob, you want to hear a story about that? And I said, Dave, I think I might know where this story is going, but yes, please tell me the story. He said, when when we established a church, we tried to figure out what we were going to name it. And he said, I propose the name Christ Community Church. And he said, they voted me down. <laughs> and he said, I, I said, the reason I, I want to make it Christ Community Church because Christ is at the heart of who we are. You heard that before? <laughs> it's at the center of our reality. Why not call it Christ Community Church? So they voted me down and he said, this is so Dave. Many of you wish I was more like Dave in a lot of ways. Um, And he said, I said to myself, ah, it's not worth the fight. And we became Evangelical Community Church. In typical fashion, he wasn't condemning the past. He wasn't saying I got it right. He was just saying, what's more important to the name of a church than Christ? I couldn't have agreed more. You know what's one of the chief characteristics of the church? There's lots of them. I'll give you that. It comes from the Gospel of John. Love. Your most powerful witness, says John, to the world is that you love one another. By that, they will know. Whatever we've been through, whatever we're about to go through, whatever our disagreements, let's do this. Let's love one another so the world will know 
and be attracted to the Lord that we serve. Shall we? Will you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for the early Christian community and the way in which a description of that community was preserved, especially in the book of Acts. We thank you that there are timeless principles in that narrative that help us understand what it means to be a community of Christ. So we pray as we think about what it means to be a community of Christ, you will open the eyes of our heart, you will give us understanding, and you will give us the will to follow you. And because we do, you will bless and grow your church. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.